It is always a delight to be here. It's tough to preach after that song. I like that song after I preach. (laughs) Because that song draws up too much emotion in me. It is so simple, but so profound. It's who you are. It's who I am. It's just... So next time after the... (laughs) Take your Bible and please look with me in Mark chapter 5. Really, that song is worth singing anytime. It is so true. He is a good, good father. read the entire story tonight beginning in verse 1 of Mark chapter 5 through verse 20 and uh, the title of my message is this and it's the point of my message that gratitude for transformation leads to conversation about Jesus Christ and I want us to think tonight about why we don't talk as much as we ought to about Jesus Christ. Because gratitude for transformation should lead to conversations about Jesus Christ. Listen to the story tonight, this event in the life of Jesus. Then they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes, And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had been often bound with shackles and chains. But he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and bruising himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and he fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was, that is, Jesus was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there in the hillside. And they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed, and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him, and he did not permit him. But he said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him and everyone marveled. Now, I love this story. One reason I love this story is because it is my story. I see myself in that wild, crazy, uncontrollable man who is tamed by Jesus Christ. 
But I also love it, as we'll see, because it's your story. Maybe you've never thought of it that way, but I hope after tonight you will look at this man and say, that was me. And this is what Jesus Christ did for me. And I'm going to live my life with gratitude for the transformation that he brought in my life. And that will lead me to conversations about Jesus Christ. Someone said that when gratitude dies on the altar of a man's heart, that man is well nigh hopeless. Yet I know that I can forget to be grateful. That ingratitude is not common only among lay people. I know pastors who are ungrateful because I have been ungrateful. Deacons can be ungrateful. Musicians can be ungrateful. Ingratitude is a capability of any of us. Good people can be ungrateful. Moral people, people who love the Bible can be ungrateful. People who are faithful to church can be ungrateful, perhaps forgetful of the magnitude of what God has done for them in Christ. And when gratitude dies, that man is well nigh hopeless because gratitude as a believer is the motivation that keeps me wanting to live faithfully for Jesus Christ. I'll never forget the simple words of D. James Kennedy, the now deceased pastor, uh, former pastor of Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church who developed that uh, evangelism program called Evangelism Explosion. And he put it this way. He said, at such a point in my life, Jesus Christ reached down and saved me. And the rest of my life from that day on was simply P.S. Thank you. Thank you for saving me. The strategy that Jesus has for spreading the gospel is bringing and filling our lives with gratitude. One man put it this way, that Jesus makes walking miracles out of marred people and then sends them to tell the world what he has done for them. That's the work of Jesus. He transforms people so that they live with gratitude and talk about him to others. And so my message again is gratitude for transformation leads to conversation about Jesus. But I want us to think tonight from this text about why we might be ungrateful. Why our lives are not filled with gratitude for what Jesus Christ has done for us. And I'm going to ask three questions. I want you to think about three questions rooted in this text. The first one is this. When you see this man, what do you see? Or maybe I should say, who do you see? Again, look at verses 1 through 5. What we read is a bit scary. Here's a man with an evil spirit, a man who lives among dead people. He's uncontrollable. He's dangerous. He cries out in weird, unintelligible sounds all the time. He's masochistic. He loves inflicting pain on himself. This man is just crazy. And most of the world, non-believers would say, this man needs saving. Something needs to happen with this man. Now, some of you know a little bit of my background, and I've learned over the years that I have to be careful about how I share the testimony of God's saving grace in my life. As a young believer, you know, I was sort of like a, a trophy. 
You know, I, I was a drug addict that 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 came to Christ. You know, I was this bad street Philadelphia guy, and and Jesus saved him. And man, I'm I'm being asked as a young believer to come to missions and and, and preach. I, I remember the first message I ever preached. I never, I don't know how to preach, but my first message had 16 points, <laughs> and they all began with L. And it was on the highway to hell. You know, it's liquor and lust. And, you know, I came up with 16 words. To begin. I had no text. I just had a good idea. And I know why, why people were going to hell. But I was, like a, I was being asked to speak at youth groups and, and crusades. And, and it was always about, you know, how bad, what a crazy man John Davis was. But then I found out that as I began to talk with people who weren't always from the same background that I was from, that I would share my testimony and they would say, well, you needed that. But, you know, I'm I'm good. I'm religious. I, I go to church. You know, I never got into that stuff. And so I realized that I had to uh, give another part of my testimony and leave some of it out because I was raised in a Christian home and uh, I knew what it was to be in church three or four times a week and I knew the Bible and I had memorized scripture and you know I had all of that Christian stuff in me but I was still a pagan at heart and lost so I had to learn that the world looks at certain conversions as more spectacular than others. Uh, I love to tell the story of my brother Steve, who became a believer three years after I did. I was a speed freak. He was a heroin addict and, uh, and, a, and a dealer. And I can remember my buddy across the street, Joey, uh, as I'm trying to witness them one day, he's saying, you know, I don't need that. I'm, you know, I'm a Roman Catholic. I go to church, you know, I, I don't need that. But your brother, he's a blight in this neighborhood. Do something about your brother. And it was probably just a few days later that Steve repented and came to Christ. And by the way, this is an aside, but on Friday, he passed his defense of his PhD dissertation. Now he's a double doctor. We both have doctorates, but now he's a double doctor. He's Dr. Doctor Steve. But here's here's a, a heroin addict, a high school dropout, who's planted churches in France and Romania and Philadelphia and now working together in, in, in Philly. And uh, the gospel got to him. But Joey, as far as I know, he died without ever repenting of being religious. Never saw himself in, as this man. I, I was a wild man and Steve was a wild man. And, you know, when I think of what, 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 what Christ has done for me, it's spectacular. I still have not gotten over the simplicity, yet the powerful experience of being forgiven of all of my sin. But I think of my wife. She became a believer as a, as a child. She doesn't get invited to missions to, or conferences and say, Tell about how, tell us how you came to Christ as a child. It's like, it's almost as if some testimonies of God's saving grace are more extraordinary. But you know, that's not only the way that other people think about it. That's the way that you may think about your own testimony. But if we really think about it, we know that what is powerful about our conversion is the work of Jesus Christ. It is not 
how bad I was or how much stuff I was doing. What's powerful about our conversion is, is what did Christ do on the cross for sinners? But I would say that most evangelical churches see themselves as having a few very special trophies of the grace of God. And we see it, of course, in evangelical Christianity all the time. We have uh, so celebrity uh, who, who are saved. We have it in Philadelphia. And I do admire uh, Carson Wentz and Nick Foles. I, I think that they do have genuine testimonies. But people want to have them because there's, you know, there's something more spectacular about being saved if you are a great quarterback than if you were a child who heard the gospel in Sunday school and saw your sin as as little as you knew of your sin at that point, you knew it was sin and you repented of it and believed in Jesus. Of course, 30 years later, you understand your sin much better and more deeply than you did then. And you're even more grateful 30 years, years later. But I think it's tragic that some Christians feel like they don't have a dramatic Wonderful, extraordinary testimony of God's saving grace in their life. I had this conversation with with one of our elders, and finally he 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 got it because he would look at Steve and I and say, "Wow, look at what what Jesus did for you." And he would say, "You know, I, I was always the good kid, but you weren't." And once you understand that, so I say, you need to look again at this man in Mark chapter 5. Who do you see? Are you, are you looking at a picture, at a story of someone? Or when you read the story, are you looking at a mirror? Is this a reflection of you, of lost humanity in its ugliest as God sees it. Maybe you don't and maybe your neighbor doesn't, but God sees that this is the picture of lost humanity. It is a mirror, not just a story. We know Paul's words in Ephesians 2. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts like the rest. We were by nature objects of wrath. Who's that talking about? Is it just the the drug addict on the corner who gets wonderfully converted? Or is it the six-year-old in Sunday school class who is still captured by Satan apart from the grace of God? We read that description in Romans chapter 3. There's no one righteous Not even one. There's no one who understands. No one who seeks God. All have turned away. They've together become worthless. There's no one who does good. Not even one. And then he describes, you know, their throats are an open sepulcher, grave. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. And he goes on and on and describes how ugly humanity is in its depravity, in, in the deepest part of their heart. Whether it's a five-year-old child or a 15-year-old or a 50-year-old, apart from the grace of God, there is a deep ugliness as ugly as this wild man living among the tombs. Whether you are Mother Teresa or Adolf Hitler... 
apart from God's saving grace, there is no hope. Paul says there's no difference between Mother Teresa and Adolf Hitler. Between the self-righteous, very religious Jew and the pagan uh, idolater. There is no difference for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Our problem with lacking gratitude is that we have not seen and do not continue to see ourselves in this man. Because when you do, when you, when, when you understand the, the, the depth of your depravity, the depth of your alienation from God, the depth of your bondage to Satan, and understand that Jesus Christ has rescued you, that brings gratitude for transformation that leads to conversation about Jesus Christ. And we need to think about this. Because who needs who needs salvation more? Is it this wild man in Mark chapter 5? Or is it the religious leaders in the temple in Jerusalem? Who, who needs the grace of God more? Who needs saving more? The child who's raised in a Christian home? Or the child who's sniffing glue on the streets of Guatemala? Who needs saving more? The college student who grew up in a Christian home? Or the Muslim girl from Yemen? Or the prostitute on the corner? Who, who needs to experience more the powerful grace of God? Who was more bound by sin and Satan? Saul, the self-righteous Pharisee, the one who, who was exceptional in his obedience to the law, or Zacchaeus, that corrupt tax collector? Who was more bound by sin and Satan? When we see ourselves as God sees us, when we see the depth of our depravity, we will bathe in the glory and the magnificence of his great salvation. And the more you understand God as you grow as a Christian and his holiness is unfolded before you, and the more you understand yourself, even though you didn't quite grasp how deep sinful you were as a five-year-old, as a 50-year-old, and as you have grown in your understanding of the Word of God and the work of the Spirit of God in your life, you have seen an ugliness and a horror that makes you want to cry out even louder, thank you, Lord, for saving me. And you will be able to say, even if you were good compared to others, when God saves you, you will say, like the Apostle Paul, that self-righteous Pharisee, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Who do you see? Secondly, in verses 6 through 13 of our text, how do you... Understand the world around you. What is your worldview, especially when it comes to good and evil? Now, I find it interesting that Jesus here is not in the Jewish territory of uh, the ancient world. He's in Gadara or Gerasa, as it's sometimes called, part of the Decapolis. Uh, 
those 10 cities in north central uh, uh, Palestine, Galilee, mostly a Gentile area. You know, we know by reading it, you know, this certainly isn't Jewish. I mean, no Jew would be anywhere near a place that had one pig, let alone 2,000 pigs. So Jesus is in this Gentile area, bringing the gospel not only to his own people, but to the world at, at large. And he comes upon this man. He's intentionally where he is. He comes upon this man who is bound by sin and Satan, who lives in a world that was dualistic. The ancient world, apart from, from Israel, basically was, was a world that believed in the equal power of good and of evil. And so you worked hard to appease evil powers, you worked hard to appease the good powers, but you always believed that there was this battle going on between these equal powers and you're sort of caught in between. I think that many Christians live that way. That they are so overcome by the evil of life and the evil influences of life that they really don't functionally believe that there is a greater power, that we don't live in a dualistic world, but we live in a world where the supreme power, the sovereign power of the world is good and is holy, and he is above all powers, every uh, claim to, to, to power. But many times we live in that, that ancient world, that dualistic world in the way we look at life. Or maybe we live in the modern world. This may be likely for some of you. The modern world simply says that if you can't explain it, if you can't verify it, if you can't prove it, then it's nothing but superstition. Uh, There's nothing beyond the world of what you see and feel and smell and touch, what you can experience. And so belief in evil powers and demons and the devil, that's just plain superstition. And though most Christians would say, no, theologically, I I believe in the devil. Functionally, we live as if evil power is not at work in the world around us. Or maybe you're even more advanced than the modern world because in many ways, at least philosophically, the modern world has been left behind and we're in a postmodern world and almost past the postmodern world now. And in a postmodern world, there really is no truth. It's, it's your truth. You know, it's what, what you think it is, what you believe it is. And, and that's, that's true. To you, there are a postmodern would say there's, you know, many valid spiritual realities. It's whatever, whatever you think is real, then that's real to you. But how do you look at the world? This demon possessed man seems to have a biblical worldview. He's not a Jew. He's a Gentile. But he seems to have an understanding that there is an evil power at work in his life and in the world he's living in against which he is helpless. And he has heard enough about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, that he prostrates himself before him Believing, indicating his belief that this Jesus actually has power over evil. It isn't a dualistic world he's living in. There actually is a God who casts out demons. And it's interesting that even the demons who speak as one legion, 
have a biblical worldview. Of course, James tells us that, that the demons believe in God, but they're smarter than most people who say, I believe in God. Because the demons believe in God and they tremble when they know and think of the reality of who this supreme, holy, and good God is. They tremble. Well, we can say, I believe in God without any impact on our life at all. The demons knew the superior power of this creator redeeming God. The demons know that hell awaits them. And they're frantically working to keep captive everyone they can. As Paul says, in the snare of the devil, that trap of the devil. And yet we who say we believe in a supreme power, we believe in an evil power, and it is powerful evil. We see it at work all the time. You wonder how in the world can people in America believe some of the things they believe about morality, about, about killing babies. How can anybody believe that? Well, there is no human explanation. There is an evil power named Satan with a myriad legions of demons who are influencing and controlling people Sometimes with evil like that, and sometimes the other direction, just religion. But anything to keep people from surrendering to Jesus Christ as Lord. I think many of us live our lives without any awareness that back in that garden, there was a battle that was initiated between God and Satan, between Christ and Satan, that rages behind the scenes every day in every place in this world that we live in. But it's a battle that we know that God always has the upper hand. There's no fear that Satan is ever winning. God is always has the upper hand. It's a battle that is raged over the eternal destiny of human beings. It's a battle that Jesus tells us he won decisively at the cross. Now is the prince of this world cast down that Satan was defeated at the cross of Jesus Christ. It's a battle that though it may continue today, it's a losing battle, and we know it's a losing battle, so we don't have to surrender to it. But I don't think we live with much awareness of it. Because I would think that if I were a prisoner of war, living under the worst torturous conditions and was rescued by a SEAL team I would be grateful I would live a life of gratitude but our text is telling us that this man was bound possessed by Satan not just one demon A myriad, a legion of demons. And Jesus sets him free. And Paul says, you were under the power of Satan. The spirit of disobedience was working in your life. And if you don't belong to Jesus, then he says to you what he said to the Pharisees. You are of your father, the devil. And Jesus reaches down and he transfers you out of the kingdom of darkness. 
that kingdom in which everything ultimately is horrific and ugly and torturous and barbarous. He transfers you out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son, the kingdom of light. I mean, if we really understand this, if we really believe this, that Satan was my master before September 10th, 1970. That he had a stranglehold on my life and that he was holding on to me so tightly so that when Jesus would ultimately cast him into hell, he would drag me in also. But Jesus comes along and he sets me free. He breaks that bondage. Do I live with gratitude? Do I live every day believing that even though evil is at work in this world, I serve one who is greater than all of the evil power that is work in this world? I have a sovereign God, a good God, who is always on the side of his people. And if God before us, but because we don't see from where we've been, from whom we've been delivered, we don't live with an awareness of this ongoing battle. We don't live with the confidence of the outcome of this battle. We fail to live with gratitude. We lack the wonder and the awe that is appropriate for someone who has literally been snatched out of the grasp of the devil. Yes, this man's story is our resume. It's your story. You were bound by Satan. You were helpless. There was nothing that anybody could do. Nobody had the strength to to control you. You needed Jesus Christ. When we grasp this, this, it not only transforms our own lives with gratitude, it transforms our evangelism. Because we know that there is nobody who is too hard or too evil or too far gone or too self-righteous or too religious for Jesus to rescue from the bonds of Satan. We evangelize with gratitude And we evangelize with confidence of the power of the gospel. So that when we walk by that beggar on the street, that drug addict, that drunkard on the street, we realize they're captive by Satan. But we know one who has power to break that bondage. And when we're talking to our Our nice aunt, she's good, she's religious, she never hurts anybody, but we know she's bound by Satan. The chains for some are are the things that I did, the drugs, the outward Stuff that society rejects. The change for others is just self-righteousness, goodness, religion. But we begin to look at people as we have known ourselves to be. Captive by Satan, delivered by the power of Jesus Christ, which gives us confidence in our evangelism. One third question. And that is, what do you really value in life? What's important to you? 
in verses 14 through 20, as the townspeople come out, they've heard of this dramatic transformation that has taken, taken place. And they're alarmed. They're fearful. They are afraid. They see this wonderful transformation and they have no ability to explain it or to appreciate it. Matter of fact, all they can think about it about is what they've lost because their values are distorted. I would expect in a crowd that's coming out of the city who has known this wild man living in these tombs for years, I would expect that in that crowd there might have been a mother who would say, Thank you, Jesus. This is my son that you've rescued from the clutches of the devil. I was talking to a pastor friend the other day and he was telling me about uh, one of the leaders of his church, a very successful, wealthy leader who gave over $50,000 a year to the church, who left, got angry at him. But why did he leave? Because this Christian man had a rebellious son, a very good ball player, whom he wanted to be a professional ball player. But he also wanted him to come to Jesus, and so he pleaded with the pastor, spend time with my son. And he spent time with that son. And the son grasped the gospel and accepted the gospel and was transformed by the gospel and said as he grew and as he understood the Bible, you know, I want to invest my life for the Lord. I want to consider ministry. And the dad said, no, that's not what I wanted. I just wanted a good kid. I would expect to hear the town watch group say, thank you, Jesus. That man, Steve Davis, John Davis, Brian Martin, they were a blight to our neighborhood. Thank you. They were a threat and you've changed them. Our neighborhood was better. But no. I would expect the local psychiatrist to say, thank you, Jesus. We tried every kind of drug and pill there was. We couldn't help them. I would expect the local religious leaders to say, thank you, Jesus. We tried to get them to church and tried to clean them up, but there was nothing that religion could do. Thank you for transforming him. I would expect the local police to say, Thank you, Jesus, for doing what force and power and the law could never do. One day, my brother Steve and I and our other brother Jim, we got on our Harleys and we rolled, rode into our old neighborhood where, I, where our church is now in Philly. But before we were there, we rode back into the old neighborhood and uh, pulled up in front of the house we grew up in. When they knocked on the door, somebody peeked and they looked at three of us and said, I'm not answering that door. Uh, so they didn't answer the door. So we went back, we're getting on our bikes and uh, a policeman comes by slowly from the 25th district. And he says, hello. And Steve said, that's the first time a cop in the 25th district, ever said hello to me. They always said, you're bad news, Davis. But there's nobody here saying, Jesus, thank you for doing what the law can't do. There's no social workers, drug therapists, counselors saying, thank you for doing what no government or nonprofit can do. All you hear 
is this. Get out of here, Jesus. You not only scare us by this unusual demonstration of power that we can't explain, but you've also ruined our economy. What you've done and the way you've accomplished it has cost us more than the conversion and transformation of one man is worth. Because certainly 2,000 pigs, I mean, that's a lot of pork and a lot of sausage and a lot of ham. And if you're from Philly, that's a lot of scrapple. Love it. Once in a while. It'll kill you, but it tastes good. Now, they didn't have the value system that Jesus had. Because Jesus said, what would it profit a man if he gained the whole world and lost his soul? How can you measure the value of a human being who will live somewhere forever, whether it's heaven or hell, but they will live somewhere forever? Now, these people said this, this is costing us too much that we cannot appreciate what has happened to this man. But I'm sad to say these town folk remind me of people that I've seen in church life over 40 some years who are always asking, what's it going to cost? You know, What's it going to cost for me to reach my neighbors? You mean I have to be nice to them? I have to cut my grass? I have to take care of my property? I have to be friendly? Maybe even hospitable? And take time to invite them in my home and invest in them? I mean, that costs too much. I don't know a neighbor who is worth that much. Doesn't mean I have to put aside my prejudice. I mean, there are just some people I don't like. I don't like their language. I don't like their color. I don't like their religion. And they're not worth it. My prejudice has more value than their soul. Does it mean that I, I need to be generous in supporting a church that maintains a gospel witness in a neighborhood, a lighthouse to a lost and dying world? Does it mean I have to give and maybe even try to live more of a lifestyle of stewardship that reflects the value that I have of people needing the gospel? I think the evidence that gratitude dies on the altar of our heart is that we care so little about others that are lost. That we have so lost sight of the grace of God in our life, the wonder of what Christ did on the cross for us and then what he did in us in applying his salvation. But I love the end of the chapter. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And Jesus did not permit him, but he said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went throughout all those 10 cities the Decapolis talking about what Jesus did in showing mercy for him again I like D. James Kennedy P.S. after God saved me the rest of my life is simply thank you Amen. 
Would you bow your head with me for a moment? Are you failing to live a life of gratitude for transformation that should lead you to conversations about Jesus Christ? Is it because that you've never really looked at yourself in this man and you haven't grown in understanding the holiness of God and your own sinfulness so that at the same time you've been growing in your appreciation for the cross of Christ. Do you need to pray, God, help me to see myself as you see me so that the wonder of the gospel can just be blown up in my eyes? Do I fail to live with gratitude because my worldview about the battle that's taking place between Christ and Satan does not even enter my thinking. The wonder of me being rescued from the clutches of Satan rarely enters my thinking. I live without gratitude because I live without the wonder of being rescued from Satan. Or is it your value system that even though most of us wouldn't be bold enough to put it in such clear words, we value some stuff more than we value the gospel and the souls of people. God, forgive us. And would you take a moment tonight just to Say that, God, forgive me, because I am that man. And you have wonderfully saved me. And you have delivered me from the power of darkness. And you have given me in Christ something more precious than anything that can be possessed in this world. Help me to live a life of gospel stewardship. And if you don't know Jesus Christ tonight, then this man before Christ is still you. And when God cast Satan into hell someday, with his stranglehold on you, you will follow. And only Jesus Christ can break that bondage today. Trust him right where you sit. Say, God, forgive me and save me and give me new life right here. Set me free in Jesus' name. Father, thank you for the power of the gospel, the joy of the gospel. Fill our hearts with Gratitude, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.